This is FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place to Talk. Hip, hip, hooray, let's give a cheer. It's 9 a.m., the signal's clear. Our favorite host is in the chair. The Truman Show is on the air. It's The Truman Show with Truman Jones. A look at the politics, news, sports, and people that are shaping Rutherford County. The Truman Show is on the air. The Truman Show is on the air. From Sylvan Park Restaurant on Northwest Broad Street, Truman Jones is on News Radio WGNS. Good morning, Rutherford County. What were you doing to me, Greg Tucker? I was trying to tell you it's time to start. Yeah. I wasn't sure you were focused. I, I, I was focused there for a minute. It's loud this morning. Yes, it is. But but um, isn't it a beautiful morning? And Didn't we you know, have a beautiful weekend? Oh, we uh, did. To celebrate. I tell you what makes it even better is it's Lauren Smith's birthday. And she is one of the sweetest, prettiest, smartest girls I've ever known. She's, she's smart enough to think your grandson's pretty Yes, big. yes. <laughs> isn't, isn't that great when you when you see young love like that? Oh, it's my. really special. Well, my granddaughter's six years old. I don't want to see anything like that yet. <laughs> but she, 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 we, did, she, we did go swimming, or at least my wife went swimming with her, in very cold water. But it was. Did it they was, turn blue? Uh, the little one did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little one shivered and, and turned blue, but uh, she had a big time. Can she swim as well as her grandmother? Not as well as, but she's on her way. Yeah. You know, she, she's got the best place in the world where she's living because she's doing so many exciting things. It kind of reminds me of my little childhood when we used to run all over the country and and we had all that freedom to do all the things that we wanted to do. That's pretty special. Well, I showed you on Saturday when you dropped by the house uh, something that uh, the six-year-old and one of her playmates found, Uh uh, which uh, I'm glad to know this stuff's still out there. They found a Civil War relic, a uh, bayonet, mm-hmm. uh, obviously very rusty. What I think is all this rain we had, it kind of washed off some things. Yeah. And they're out climbing on the old rock wall and found kind of stuck up under the wall, this old bayonet and a button. Did she, she, did she bring it to you? She came over and brought it to me to show to me. And I talked her into letting me keep it for a few days so I can show it to some of my friends. You've seen it. That was pretty neat. Yeah. That's, now, are, are you going to kind of clean it up a little bit and put it in your no, historical parts? I'm going to show it to Wayne Reed, who originated the hobby of uh, metal detecting in this area. And then I'm going to give it back to the little girl to keep in her, her collection. That's pretty neat. Wayne Reed has been doing that for a long time since they invented the uh, metal detectors. And I can remember Wayne, and I think he was with, uh, um, let's see, who was it? I'm I'm not sure, but anyway, you remember when we built the jail over there on on Salem Highway, New Salem Highway, a lot of metal detectors came over because that was one of the spots, supposedly, where the, the encampments were. Right. Right. And uh, they did find quite a few things. Uh, I was uh, I was tickled to death just sit there and watch them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wayne, uh, we ought to acknowledge, had a little health problem and uh, has been under quarantine. But uh, I haven't checked today. But he supposedly came home, got released, and uh, is is back back at home. And hopefully we'll see him before the weeks out. Uh, Nothing will keep him down. Yeah. Uh, Wayne and uh, my predecessor, Homer Pittard, one of the former county historians, uh, had kind of a partnership going. Wayne was uh, working the square installing telephones. That was his profession. He yeah, worked he, he worked on the old jail Yeah, and the new jail. And he did mostly installations around the campus and the downtown. Mm-hmm. 
and he was putting in a phone uh, for Homer. And they got to talking. This is a story Wayne tells. They got to talking and discovered their very closely related interest. Wayne wanted to find the relics and find out where they were. Mm -hmm. And Homer, of course, wanted to know more of the history that we could learn about the Civil War in that period. So Homer would do the uh, book research and tell Wayne where likely was the encampment or the skirmish or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, Wayne would go out with his primitive then metal detecting equipment and confirm by finding relics. And not just metal relics, but uh, he also was had learned how to find where a fireplace had been or where you know, uh, uh, a lot of people had passed uh, and such. And uh, years later, of course, Homer's been gone a long time, but Wayne worked with me and we developed a map of Rutherford County, which showed the encamp which shows the encampment locations all over the county. Yeah. And that's uh, still on display, I think, over at the county archives. Uh, and uh, uh, one interesting aspect of it was that uh, it was obvious that the Union and the Confederates camped in the same place, but at different times. Yeah. Because you'll find uh, the relics from the two different sides all mixed together in some of these locations. Isn't it funny? You could talk to, I spent more time talking with Miss Mabel Fitter because she was my eighth grade teacher over at Mitchell Nelson. And, and, and the history that you learned back then from the people who, who knew the actual history was different than what you can read in a book or what they're given. I, I've noticed that the mothers who have been teaching their kids at home through this virus have found out that the history that they were supposed to teach to their children was not really the actual history of what's happened, and I think they're rising up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm not sure what you're specifically referring to, but we have learned uh, over the last uh, decade, because we have new resources available to us, Yeah. that some of what we had believed for many years and been taught for many years isn't, is not correct history. Yeah. And uh, first thing was in the in the 1990s, we discovered a set of journals kept by a very prominent uh, businessman, family, John Spence, who's uh, writing of contemporary events. You know, he was alive during the Civil War. He was uh, one of the early businessmen back in the mid-1800s. Uh, and, you know, that was a start because uh, immediately we found that, uh, you know, it's first-hand experience. It was different from what some of us had assumed over the years was the case. And then uh, uh, just uh, the computer has made it possible for us to compare writings from, uh, you know, all, all the way back and all around. Mm -hmm. And, again, reveal things that we hadn't, hadn't otherwise known. So, you know... Those times, I mean, history seems like it's in the eye of the beholder and what they believe it to be than what actually happened. Well, I learned early on, don't argue with someone's belief if they've decided that this is the history they're going to believe. You know, uh, it doesn't do any harm, hopefully, most of the time. Uh, although I do get uh, concerned when I see someone twisting history in order to accomplish some intent current. Yeah, and I'm afraid we see that in uh, a lot of what's been going on the last year uh, in terms of our, our history. People are trying to use it to uh, gain advantage today, and I think that's unfortunate. Unless, you know, you're precisely accurate, but I'm afraid much of what we hear is not uh, today. We see, them, we see them try to change things that probably they have no idea uh, what they're actually relating to, because you know the the Nathan Bedford Forest, uh, ROTC place over at MTSU. You and I, we we sat through that, and you actually had to comment on a lot of the things that they were bringing up that weren't actually accurate at all. And the and the sad thing about it is, most of those people didn't even know what it was or where it was. Uh, when I, when I, I went through there and so many other people went through there, 
I couldn't tell you what the Nathan Bedford Forest uh, name was during that time because we didn't have a, a really strong background on, on that type of history. Well, the uh, people who were in the ROTC program were aware uh, of the name, whether they actually knew the history of the name. And well, I had ROTC and I didn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. That's a good example, though, of ignoring history in order to recast it the way you want it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Forrest, of course, is a good example of how attitudes and circumstances and laws were changing so dramatically during that period. Yeah. Uh, you know, before the war, slavery was legal. Slavery was endorsed by the courts. Slavery was endorsed by the church. Mm -hmm. It was the economic system. And uh, uh, obviously it was not the right system and uh, it had to change. But, you know, we need to acknowledge that uh, someone living in the 1840s was not immoral or illegal because they had domestic servants. Mm -hmm. That was the style, that was the economy of the time. It doesn't say it was right by today's standards, certainly it wasn't. But uh, by the standards of that time, what was legal, what was considered moral, it was. Yeah. So, uh, and that's hard to accept today. So people don't you know, don't want to acknowledge that. But that's what was the circumstance. One of them is kind of funny, and uh, I encountered early on. And there's still one chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. They don't appreciate me. Uh, the name William Lytle, our Captain Lytle, uh, was. Uh, turned up in so many places I began to wonder how could he do all these things and it turns out that uh, here's where the the computer was very helpful mm. by pulling up all the references and comparing them there were two William Lytles actually there were five six that I've traced down in the revolution and you always War. tell me that the one that you bring up is not the one that was related to me why do you do that I don't recall doing that <laughs> But there are reports that uh, William Lytle fought with George Washington in uh, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. uh, our William Lytle was in North Carolina and served ably in North Carolina. But we find that uh, the city of Cincinnati was founded by William Lytle. Wow. Yeah, uh, but he was from Pennsylvania, hmm. not North Carolina. And uh, uh, he is one of the founders of the Cincinnati Society. Uh, oh, I thought she was going to say the Cincinnati Reds. No, not the Reds, but the, yeah. uni the University of yeah. there. And uh, segregating those two histories is interesting because uh, William Lytle of Cincinnati, originally from Pennsylvania, had a grandson who came down here during the Civil War and deliberately looked up his cousins. Mm -hmm. Uh, if they were cousins, it was it was fifth or sixth generations, and uh, ended up uh, in a relationship with the widow of uh, Captain Light, one of Captain Lytle's sons, uh, the one who remained here. Uh, it is interesting how the actual connections, uh, once you run them down, are usually more interesting than the the uh, legend, in my opinion. Uh, uh, that so many of us have heard. You know, I, I, I love the DAR group. <laughs> had had them on, and uh, I can sit there and listen to them forever. You had some of the Murphy chapter. We do have two chapters. Yeah, and, and I was going to ask, why are there two chapters? I should have asked when they were on, but why are there two chapters, and why are they separated between Lytle and Murphy? I can't answer that. Oh. Uh, I, I guess... Chapters can be organized as long as, and then they choose usually an ancestor that they relate to. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have, as long as I can remember, had a William Lytle chapter and some very fine ladies do a lot of good work. Yes, we, they we do. We have the Murphy chapter, which right now yeah. seems to be, at least in my experience, the more active I hear from They them. are very active. Yeah, very active. In fact, I had a, I was talking to them on Saturday, a couple of the, well, one of them that was on with you. Uh, um, because we have a grave uh, that uh, needs to be restored, and it's a, a veteran, uh, Thomas Blanton, uh, was a private, 
but still uh, a revolutionary veteran. And he's already been acknowledged by the uh, DAR mm -hmm. and confirmed that he was a uh, private uh, in the war and died in Tennessee and buried in Tennessee. Well, his grave is neglected, the stone's broken, so. Uh, Where is it? Uh, it's very close to the backyard of our mayor, Ketcher, his home. Wow. And uh, he was the one that brought it to my attention. And uh, That's done. close to the set, the cemetery over there. Is it? The federal, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we've got uh, Dan Allen, who is a, who restores uh, markers, mm -hmm. working to restore the marker. And I was talking to the DAR representative Saturday about uh, marking the grave with the DAR medallion as, as they do for the, those that can be confirmed as revolutionary veterans. Mm -hmm. Interesting that this one uh, was discovered through the pension records. There was a modest pension available to uh, Revolutionary War veterans back in the 1830s, 1840s. And the 1840 census actually notes a revolutionary pension. Wow. And that's the way he was identified. Uh, so hopefully we can get his grave marked and uh, get enough interest in the area around it that it'll be preserved. I'm still glad we have the World War II guys still with us. Because uh, they're, uh, I mean, a lot of people call them the greatest generation. And when I'm around them, I, I actually believe that they were the greatest generation. And of course, your dad was one of them. And, uh, um, I th you know, I think of him when they play the poem, High Flight. Well, it was read at his funeral. Uh, and it was read by one of the Black Sheep Squadron members who was still living. Mm -hmm. uh, he flew in from Arizona where he lived. Yeah. And uh, read High Flight uh, as part of the funeral service. And, and the pilot that wrote that, it, it, he wrote it down on paper. And then they were able to preserve that after he passed away because he was actually killed in a, in a training mission. He was uh, with the Canadian Air Force, although he wasn't an American. I mean, uh, uh, he was from our country. <laughs> I didn't know he was involved with the Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. But, uh, I, the, I mean, his story is just unbelievable. And... Uh, how, how much he loved uh, being in the air. I mean, he, he, he was relating his personal feelings about uh, being able to, to fly, a, just, just uh, well, it, it was, was a release for him. And it was a uh, sincere religious uh, poem too, you remember the yep. last line. Yes, I do. Everybody that's yeah. heard that poem reached out his hand and touched the face of God. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know where that came from, but you hear it, you hear it repeated. Yeah. Uh, oh, you were commenting on the excellent weather we have. You know why we're having very good weather right now? Because it's not raining and uh, cloudy. No, it was scheduled. See, tomorrow is- Who scheduled it? Uh, I think- I guess God scheduled I it, right? so, because tomorrow is the autumnal equinox, first day of autumn. Yeah, officially. Fall. So fall. it's good that uh, we have fall. When you weather. say autumn, it makes you sound like a Yankee. It's fall. <laughs> I don't think I've heard that before. Yeah. Uh, yes. It uh, is the fall equinox. But we will still have some 80 degree weather for a little while. I think the normal temperature right now would probably be 83 degrees, which was normal for fall season. Well, I read some in the paper a couple of days ago that made me shake my head. Some people never learn. You saw where we had to send in the rescue squad to pull a couple of fellows out of the snail shell cave. Yes. And uh, people never learn. People never learn. It uh, is a very dangerous cave because it's a wet cave, but it's also one of the most fascinating features, natural features in. Middle Tennessee, Tennessee, certainly in uh, Rutherford County. There is a publication, fairly recent, a snail shell cave written by Larry Matthews, who I've met talked to, and Bob Biddix, B-I-D-D-I-X. In fact, I have a copy of it autographed by the two of them. 
from historian to historian. They're cave historians. Mm -hmm. Matthews has written uh, books about a number of the different caves around around the area, beginning with Dunbar Cave. Uh, and this one is uh, illustrated. So those of us who never could go into the cave because of the skills that are needed, you can look through this book and see some of the beautiful formations in there. Like other caves, unfortunately, the easy access part gets vandalized, marked up. But uh, by using aquatic gear, scuba diving gear and such, mm -hmm. uh, recently people have been able, the professionals have been able to, to map the cave. And uh, it's interesting that uh, they estimate that uh, it drains the water course that runs through the cave actually rises somewhere down near Eagleville, flows up to the Snail Show Cave, so you can go upstream or downstream from the cave, and then has been traced using tracer dye that they'll put a little bit in the water and mm -hmm. look for it. That that water course goes all the way from down around Eagleville to uh, Florence the Florence community area where the uh, overall creek flows into Stones River. Mm -hmm. And up there is, is a spring, the old timers will know Wallace Spring, which is uh, 1,000, 1,200, 1,400 feet from the mouth of the overall creek. It's feeding into the West Fork as well. But we know that the waters coming out of the snail shell are going through snail shell come all the way up to almost to Smyrna, mm -hmm. uh, or I guess that is Smyrna now, that area. And uh, I uh, flipped through the book last night and a couple of things I'll share. It's an exceptionally long cave, uh, but we may never know, I guess over time as technology develops, they'll map more and more. But right now we have mapped, we the people who are able to do that, over nine miles of underground channels and such. Uh, the guesstimate is uh, that there is something in the range of 50 to 100 miles if we could follow all the That's amazing. courses. Yeah. And uh, oh, it's also described as, and this is almost amusing to me, one of the most biologically significant caves in the southern United States. There's an extremely rare and critically imperiled big mouth cave salamander that's known to uh, inhabit the, the snail shell system. And there's two or three different types of snails that are found only here and a few other places around the country. So it's biologically significant. Uh, it uh, underlies about 50 square miles and uh, the, the ownership history is interesting, too, because uh, a fellow named William Owen Scott purchased the property that included that main entrance to, to the cave. And I think now we know there are at least four or five, six entrances. I've heard seven, if you count those that come into the uh, adjoining cave systems. But Scott purchased it in 1939 for $600. If you ever get down around the cave mouth. And don't go in. Yeah, if you get down around it, you'll see that there's not much you can do with that property. Yeah. Uh, a lot of cedar uh, then and now, overgrowth, and a lot of bare flat rock. Uh, so I'm not sure what he was doing with it, but the Scott family kept the cave uh, property, uh, kept title to it until 2002. So it went through several generations, and I think uh, one or two of the Scott descendants became very interested in cave exploration, preserving caves. Uh, they eventually were sold to what's called the Southern Cave Conservancy, which is a volunteer group uh, that try to protect the caves uh, and uh, raise funds in order to buy them to ultimately take possession and control them. Uh, so in 2002, the Southern Cave, uh, <laughs> the Southern Cave Conservancy purchased the cave. So if you want to go in it now and you're playing fair, 
you contact the conservancy and uh, you'll basically get a permit uh, if they feel like you're someone who can be safe, knows what's going on, won't damage the cave. And you have to prove that. Yeah, you yeah, can, yeah. And uh, so there are fortunately a number of uh, volunteers, what's the word, speleologists, mm -hmm. cave explorers. Spelunkers. Spelunkers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they are still working to uh, chart the cave and extend uh, the mapped area of it. I look at the map of the cave and it's hard for someone who's not really into it to understand everything. Uh, but uh, I can see why some of them will use a, um, a line system because there's so many different left or right or straight ahead situations in the cave or some actually Snail shell, I think, has at least two levels. So you've got your upper levels and your lower levels. When they're exploring, though, some of them, I hope most of them, will use a line so they can follow the line back. And I think sometimes go into the cave with a thousand feet of line. And uh, that's, uh, was it uh, Hansel and Gretel? Who was it that dropped the, the crumbs uh, to follow out? Same, same system. Doesn't it remind you a little bit, if, if you're familiar with this area, when the heavy rains come and the dry creeks or are, are, are the, the little streams around here can change so rapidly when, when the, the rains come and it reminds me of that type of situation. You know, you see the one lane bridge over there to community care center and uh, it looks so uh, it is almost dry and next thing you look around and the water is flowing over the bridge itself. Right. Well, the cave fills very quickly and I assume that's what the two fellows that had to be rescued. Yeah. Uh, I think if it wasn't for a third one who got out before it flooded into them, uh, they might still be there. Uh, my wife wondered, would a cell phone work down in the cave? I don't know. I don't think I'd want to rely on it. But well, it doesn't work at Donald's Chapel. Why should it work there? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, how, how much have we known? Back in the 1950s, a fellow named Barr, Thomas Barr, did the first survey and, and uh, mapping of the cave. Is survey. he r related to our uh, 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 Barr, who is our, uh, uh, what do you call him? Uh, a district, he's not a district attorney. What do you call him? He's uh, just, talking about the attorney general? Yeah, the attorney general. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> he's not related to him, is I he? I don't know that uh, he's ever been underground. Yeah. Uh, but Barr wrote the first book, Caves of Tennessee. Ah, yeah. And, of course, wrote... I think I read them. Uh, yeah, well, I know you've got some personal experience with the cave. Back, yeah. Back when, uh, did you ever get into the snail shell? I have been. But that was trying to find somebody. Yeah. I didn't go in just to go in and look around. I'm not a slunker. Well, there have been several deaths in the cave mm -hmm. over the history. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know of any recently, but uh, people have been lost and, and not recovered. Yeah, it is dangerous. Yeah, it's called a wet cave, and uh, only someone who's really at a professional level in terms of skill and experience should be into it and uh, the picture of the crews that have been doing the survey or did the survey that's mm -hmm. in this late book you know they're they look like uh, what we used to call frogmen they're you know in wetsuits mm -hmm. and uh, got the, the gear and uh, you lose your direction in there you, can. you have no idea where it's up yeah. or down or where well I, I have done some amateur caving and uh, I never entered a cave without having somebody along with us who knew the cave. Mm -hmm. And uh, the local grottos, they call it, clubs, uh, if you contact them, they'll either tell you, no, this cave you shouldn't be in. In my case, I had a group of scouts, so we looked for a cave that 12, 13-year-old mm -hmm. kids could enjoy. And uh, I thought it was a very important part of the scouting program that I was involved with because there are children, even at the age of 12, 13 years old, that are afraid of the dark or yeah. are afraid to be uh, uh, claustrophobic. 
And uh, you know, if you go in under the right circumstances, you can deal with that. Two other things we learned. Uh, one was the very important, the importance of teamwork. You don't do things by yourself because this is an activity where you may need help. Yeah. And uh, uh, not, not really a may need. You definitely will if you're going to really uh, you know, do some of the challenging climbs and such in the cave. And the other thing is uh, God's handiwork. Yeah. I mean, you get down into a, a well-preserved area in a local cave and begin to see the beautiful formations and the... Uh, in some cases, the like size. Like in Lookout Mountain. Yeah. And, yeah. and the size. Of, I mean, Snail Shell has at least one area that's like 300 feet long, 15 feet high. You know, it's, uh, uh, you know, it rival the London Tunnel. Uh, if, but don't uh, go out and try to find it. No. Yes. Uh, make sure you go with somebody. And a, for those she's who are, a cutie pie over there, isn't she? Yeah, well, she's got, waving at one of us. Uh, it was me. <laughs> and she's changing things. Yeah, you're, you're such an attraction to all the ladies, bless your heart. And particularly the little ones. Yeah. Oh, as an attorney, uh, let, let me bring this up. The ones who actually own the cave, do they need to have liability insurance because of the ownership of that cave? Uh, insurance, anytime there's something hazardous is uh, good advice, but uh, cave's a natural formation, and uh, I don't think someone who buys property that has a sinkhole is obligated to cover it up or seal it. That's a good answer. Yeah, but uh, of course it goes the other way. These sinkholes around Rutherford County, we're discovering are part of, in many cases, the snail shell system mm -hmm. or one of the other uh, water systems. Uh, there's three sinkholes kind of in an east-west line. Uh, one of them's called the military sink, which is right almost adjacent to I-24. Mm -hmm. And then there's the old uh, cattle farm over on Wilk Wilkerson mm -hmm. uh, yeah. in that area. And there's a sinkhole there that's a cattle pond, or was. Of course, cows are somewhere else now, but it was a pond, and uh, it was discovered that it was a sink, and that it, it, the water flowed from military to the cow pond, and then on beyond the cow pond to another that uh, went into the river. And that has been explored, and that's one where they did it with the scuba gear. And uh, remember Lloyd Bridges and his... The thing he holds on to, the yeah. propeller and moving him along. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and they've connected those three, uh, one of which right there at the interstate. I don't think the Department of Transportation has a real good record for preserving access and uh, uh, access for drainage uh, on these sinkholes that are close to the interstates or the highways. Well, you think of this area is rocky. Almost all of Rutherford County yes. is extremely rocky, and that's where you usually find the sinkholes. But you go down in Florida, and then all of a sudden, the ground will just open up. Right. Same. Take anything as large as a, as a tractor trailer down with it. We uh, every once in a while I'll read or learn about a uh, sinkhole opening up in uh, Rutherford County, and I always think. It's reopening. Someone has tried yeah. to fill it, and eventually, in time, you know, they'll they'll settle out. Uh, I, actually, I've got a sinkhole behind my house. Yeah, and I don't think you're supposed to cover those up, are you? No. Now you cannot uh, f try to fill uh, or cover. Or, you know, you're not supposed to. There is a state statute on it, and then, uh, I don't know what the fine is, but. Uh, they are our drainage system, so if yeah. we start uh, blocking them, uh, you know, then we got water problems. Mm -hmm. So, let's see, somebody asked me, how old is the snail shell cave? Now, the estimate's about 450 to 500 million years. Uh, All right, now, how in the world are they... That is impossible. Uh, the geologists look at the nature of the snail. Now, your wife just jumped off of the, the stool and said, no, no, that's correct, that's correct. 
Maybe. Uh, it is an estimate based upon the geologic formations. Yeah. And those are not biblical years. That's, uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, it would have to be 5,000 or less if you use the biblical timetable. So the biblical Whoa, year. Whoa, wait a minute. What is the... The what are you year. saying? Yeah, I'm getting you Are you saying that Methuselah wasn't really 900 and something years old? Is that what you're saying? If the biblical years, uh, yeah, I'm sure he was. But he goes different directions. Who distinguishes that? That's what I want to know. Those who edited the Bible. <laughs> Without any knowledge whatsoever. Bless their hearts. Uh, probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Uh, Caves are fascinating. I, yeah. have, I have found that in almost any conversation, you start talking about local caves, people get interested. Uh, Rainbow Cave, you familiar with Rainbow Cave? No. That was the original name for a very well-known cave formation in this area. Later became Black Cat Cave. Yeah. Uh, the Black Cat Cave is, that's what most of us VA hospital. Now. Yeah, it's right across. It was on the VA hospital property when they redid uh, the highway through there. They had some great parties over there. We had, had to interfere with their parties a lot of times. Uh, well, it was, of course, the rumors are, and I have never found any documentation to confirm it, that it was a speakeasy back in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. I did run down the family that uh, sold the property to the VA. And after the highway cut the, prop cut the cave off, put it over on the west side, the VA eventually sold it to the city. Mm -hmm. So the city has title to it, uh, at least arguably still has title to it. Uh, is it still blocked up? It is now with large up. with large uh, boulders at one time. Well, it uh, there has been some recent activity. The uh, uh, people at um, MTSU did some research and learned that it was, uh, among other things, an Indian burial cave, uh, and found artifacts back up in there. Uh, but I ran down the family that sold the property to the VA originally that had the cave, the Sullivan family, and uh, met uh, a surviving uh, member of the family. She was in her 80s. And uh, they brought some pictures. And we found that there was actually a picture of the Rainbow Cave when it was closed up originally and turned into a, uh, a bar and a venue. And uh, I ran the picture in one of my books. And I've had several calls from around the southeast, uh, the people that are interested in cave history. And now that picture, I think, is available on the Internet because they asked for permission to use the picture. Uh, but uh, I forget which one of my books, probably the Ramblings book. Uh, you want to see how it was closed in, uh, bricked in. And I had windows and doors and such uh, to be used as a uh, as a, a bar, a bar restaurant. But behind the part that was used for that, there was a mound that, uh, whether it was formed naturally or uh, had been shoveled back in there, but in that mound is where we began to find Indian artifacts. Mm. And I uh, found the cave has a lot more history than is popularly known. Uh, another one that is fascinating is, I believe it's, we're not sure exactly, but uh, it's a voodoo cave, which is down near Beach Grove. And the caves back in the uh, pre-Civil War period were uh, used from time to time by runaways, hmm. uh, slave runaways uh, and others. And uh, there was one story which is repeated in a uh, 1929 story of Murfreesboro, a book written by the uh, newspaper editor of that period. And he tells the story of the uh, runaway who hid in the cave, would come out at night and forage, uh, chickens mostly. Uh, but he was rumored to be, uh, to know voodoo. And uh, this is part was of Was he from Haiti? Probably. Yeah. 
and uh, uh, the, he was generally left alone because the people were afraid that he would cast a spell or something. Uh, what's interesting, though, is uh, in the period 1940s, some young fellows uh, found and explored the cave, went into the cave, and they found a uh, human skeleton and a lot of voodoo artifacts. Uh, since have all disappeared. And as I say, I'm not sure whether it's the Broyles Cave or the Macon Cave, the mm -hmm. one of the caves down in the Beach Grove area was considered the voodoo cave because of this experience. Uh, you wonder why the young fellows that stumbled on the, the relics didn't uh, take some souvenirs, as probably somebody did later. And they said they were afraid of uh, toxicity. Uh, they were afraid there might be something poisonous or something involved. I think they were frankly scared off when they when they found the, the relics. Uh, one that I have tried to get on the cave registry because uh, locally down around Fosterville they call it the Stovall Cave. Actually, what I'd call a big sinkhole, and water usually at the bottom of it. Probably right now it's full of water. Uh, and I got some of these uh, cave professionals to come down and look at it, but there was too much water in it at the time to get into. Trying to get it on the registry, I need to check and see if it did, but I got a little family history with the Stovall Cave because uh, Stovall was the f property owner around the cave either. Uh, I don't know whether they actually had the cave on their property, but they were adjacent. St Mr. Stovall was a uh, Civil War Confederate veteran. Today, he probably would be diagnosed as uh, the trauma stress uh, problem, PTSD. Yeah. Because he was prone to uh, erratic behavior and uh, at times seemed to be under control. At times, he seems erratic. He had uh, two or three children and his wife. I lived down that area. The oldest girl was in Murfreesboro on some activity, and he uh, murdered his wife and the other children mm -hmm. and put the uh, bodies in the sinkhole and then uh, committed suicide in the sinkhole with them. Uh, a very significant tragedy for the community. And... Uh, you know, they recovered the bodies, but of course never knew just what had happened. Uh, my great-grandfather, Tucker, George Franklin Tucker, remembered the incident when he was a child. This was in the early 1900s, and was afraid that it would be forgotten. So if you go down to that cave, which is on the Fosterville to Midland, uh, along there, uh, there's a marker that uh, my great-grandfather made by just pouring cement, making a little form, pouring cement. And he records on there that uh, Stovall killed his wife and children uh, in this cave and has the date on it. Mm. Why don't we take a break? Let's do it. From Sylvan Park Restaurant on Northwest Broad Street, it's The Truman Show on News Radio WGNS, FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and streaming online at WGNSradio.com. Sylvan Park Restaurant on Northwest Broad, across from the Ford dealer, host of the Truman Show live broadcast. Food is ready-made. It's hard work, but you got to enjoy the people, and you just have to enjoy what you do. If those two things come into play, then it's not that hard, I don't think. Open Monday through Saturday at 6.30 for breakfast and lunch, Thursdays and Fridays for dinner. Have you changed your menu very much since you've been here? No, sir. If it's working, just keep doing it. Sylvan Park Restaurant on Northwest Broad, across from the Ford dealer. People bring a lot of their family heirlooms to bell jewelers, things that they inherited, and they don't know if the pieces have any value, if they're costume, if there's a little bit of value or something very valuable. So Bell Jewelers has the gemologist on staff that can help let you know what needs to be appraised. I'm Greg Tidwell at Bell Jewelers. The oldest retail store in Rutherford County. Northwest Broad, across the street from Toots. Bell Jewelers. 
At Bud's Tire Pros, they care about those who live and work here because you're a big part of what makes this place great. This is Kay Mitchell at Bud's Tire. Come by and see us at Bud's Tire, 3600 East Main Street, or call 896-TIRE. They will be here through the good times and the uncertain times. For those who are out on the road, stop in today to see their full lineup of Michelin tires. For whatever you drive, Michelin has a tire to fit any need. Bud's Tire Pros, they're essential, they're open, they're local. Visit them online at BudsTireProsTN.com. Now an update from the WGNSRadio.com News Center. I'm Ron Jordan. Enrollment is up at Middle Tennessee State University. Vice President of Student Affairs Dr. Deborah Sells says fall semester enrollment is up by around 2%. She says she knows that due to COVID-19 this year, it's been difficult for students and their families to choose to be on campus or to study from home. Sells thinks much of the MTSU's enrollment increase can be attributed to newly enrolled graduate students. The deadline to register to vote in November comes up soon. The Partners in the Struggle and the Urban League of Tennessee nonprofits both had people helping others get registered on Saturday. Earl Thomas with Partners says everyone who's eligible should exercise their right to vote. The Urban League's event also helped people complete the 2020 census form. Tennessee's voter registration deadline is October 5th. The 2020 census deadline is September 30th. One person injured on Bryant's Grove boat ramp Friday when putting their boat into the Stones River near Percy Priest Lake. The boat and pickup were completely underwater when Rutherford County Fire and Rescue arrived. Scuba divers had to be called to assist in removing the Ford pickup truck and the trailer. The injured man was taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. A reward is being offered for information that leads to the arrest and conviction of the persons who vandalized the construction site adjacent to the New Salem Highway and I-24. Police spokesman Larry Flowers told News Radio WGNS that sometime between the weekend of September 4th, a new Volvo excavator was damaged at the job site. A GPS unit, computer, and internal controls were stolen, and vandals put dirt in the fluid reservoir and broke the glass on the cab. If you have any helpful information, please contact Murfreesboro Police. News on demand 24-7 at WGNSRadio.com. I'm Ron Jordan reporting. News updates around the clock, when it breaks, and on demand at WGNSRadio.com. We are News Radio WGNS. This is an important message for all current and former Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts of America has declared bankruptcy. If you were sexually abused in scouting, you could receive compensation, but you must file a claim by November 16, 2020. You may file a sexual abuse claim regardless of your current age or the year the sexual abuse occurred. Visit officialbsaclaims.com or call 1-866-907-2721. Paid for by the Boy Scouts of America. This is your alarm on an ordinary vacation. Hello, ma'am. This is your wake-up call. (sighs) This is your alarm on a real vacation. Go on a real vacation. Go RV. Take the wheel at your nearest RV dealer or at GoRVing.com. Good neighbor weather. Skies become mostly sunny here this afternoon, high in the upper 70s. Winds out of the southeast around 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tonight, partly cloudy skies, alone near 50. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 55. Premier Six Theater is open. They're excited to see you again and will be showing some classic movies you'll be sure to enjoy. Check MurfreesboroMovies.com for showtimes for Premier Six Theater. They're now open. News Radio WGNS. News Radio WGNS, Murfreesboro. From Sylvan Park Restaurant on Northwest Broad Street, it's The Truman Show on News Radio WGNS, FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and streaming online at WGNSradio.com. And welcome back with Greg Tucker. And we uh, had a little note here said we had a caller that there is a back door to the cave on Morgan Road, known as the Gulf. And the cave is part of the reason the government didn't put the super collider in Middle Tennessee, uh, and that was in the mid-'80s. But, of course, the biggest reason was they got uh, outbid by Texas. Yeah, Texas uh, had occasion to talk to the people who made that decision. 
And the big reason was, uh, well, you know, nobody ever wants it in their backyard. Yeah. But uh, Texas offered to put up money, and uh, that quickly made the made the decision to go to Texas, someplace called Waxahachie in Texas, and uh, it never got done. Uh, I guess either the money turned out not to be there or the other complications. And uh, the collider was eventually built in uh, Switzerland, Europe. Now, was it successful? That's the question. It has expanded. Um, I'm beyond my expertise here, but it has uh, significantly expanded the knowledge of uh, quantum physics and particle theory and such as that, uh, which I'm told by the media sometimes is, is the future. <laughs> I don't really know. But it did get actually built and in use and has added uh, considerably to our knowledge at that level. Uh, what do you mean we? I'm speaking of civilization, <laughs> I guess. Good, don't ask me any more questions about it. Uh, let's see, there's another cave that, I, that comes to mind because it's kind of aggravating. A uh, little background, there was a Revolutionary War captain named Eusebius Bushnell. Eusebius, you don't see that as a first name very much. Anymore. I've never seen it actually before. E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S, -E -E and his last name was Bushnell, B-U-S-H-N-E-L-L. -L. If you go back into the North Carolina Grant records, the Bushnell name comes up frequently because he was a very aggressive buyer of the land grants from others, uh, as well as what he got for his, uh, his service. And at one time controlled about 10,000 acres in Rutherford County. Uh, in fact, uh, the records show that when the Ruckers, who were not uh, grantees, mm -hmm. when they bought the property in Rutherford County and some of our early settlers, the Ruckers, they bought from Bushnell because mm -hmm. he controlled so much over here. Uh, on his property, or what was his property, uh, was a cave still there, except now I think it's under a cow pond. Uh, but uh, the cave uh, was also named for him, Bushnell Cave. It's B-U-S-H-N-E-L-L. -L. Uh, and I think uh, if you look on the USGS maps, you'll, you'll find, in fact, some of the other maps, Bushnell Cave. Uh, the revolutionary veteran, but there's a creek that flows out of the cave, and today you will not find Bushnell Creek. Uh, perhaps some of the old federal maps would still show it. Today it's called Bushman, B-U-S-H-M-A-N. Flows right past the Oakland School Complex mm -hmm. there. Uh, what happened was that uh, when the Yankees came down here and started drawing maps, and labeling things, somebody must have said, they, they must ask somebody, what's the name of this creek? And the local boy said, Bushno, and they wrote Bush Man. So hmm. uh, the name of the creek on the, uh, the maps prepared by the Yankee cartographers was Bush Man instead of Bushnell. Uh, there was no individual with the last name Bushman. It was just a basically a misspelling. But that's what's taken taken hold. So now most of our modern maps have Bushman Creek. I have suggested that we correct that uh, error, but there's not much enthusiasm for changing all the maps and changing all the signs. Uh, Can you imagine what a mess that would be? Yeah. <laughs> that's, why you, that's why you recommended it, right? Yeah, I thought, uh, well, at least... Uh, we should know the history that uh, Bushnell was a uh, Revolutionary War captain that at one time owned an awful lot of property around this area and that Bushman is a misspelling of his name uh, or a mispronunciation at least. You know, how in the world, you mentioned a lot of these people that have enough uh, um, money or whatever that they can buy up things like that. Where in the world did they get their monies back in those particular days? Most of them were landowners uh, because in the North Carolina and such, that was the industry, it was an agricultural industry. Uh, but it didn't take much. 
mean, if you were a Revolutionary War private mm -hmm. serving in the North Carolina militia, remember the there wasn't really an American army, it was the state in mm -hmm. the state. So you were in the North Carolina militia. You got 640 acres over here in this wilderness area that eventually became Tennessee. 640 acres. Um, today that sounds like a big holding. That is one square mile. But were you taxed on your property at the time? Uh, not yet. Yeah. But what happened is you had to go over and claim it. Mm -hmm. You had to go over and register it with the, there was an office set up in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And of course, you and I have talked about what a scandal it turned into be. Yeah. But someone like Bushnell could probably buy for pennies an acre from uh, some of these uh, veterans who didn't want to leave North Carolina, had no interest in coming over and starting in this wilderness. There still were uh, relationships with the uh, native tribes were still unsettled at that mm -hmm. time. Uh, so Bushnell and uh, Murphy, uh, Hardy Murphy was doing the same thing. Started buying up anything that uh, you know somebody wanted to dispose but of. But there was no tribal ownership, correct? So they were overriding a lot of what w would oh. probably be Cherokee land and things oh, yeah. like that. Well, you're getting into another area of controversial history. Uh, there were treaties where supposedly, uh, well, Black Fox supposedly sold uh, a big part of the Cherokee hunting lands to uh, the uh, white settlers. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he was apparently a pretty smart Indian, uh, probably not politically correct there, but uh, part of the deal was that he got a lifetime annuity. So from the time, which was about 1800, 1802, something in there, when he signed this treaty, he got an annuity for the rest of his life from the federal government, uh, which he moved to Oklahoma and uh, probably prospered out there. Uh, but anyway, that's where someone like Bushnell was able to accumulate so much land. And if you were a commander, uh, an officer in the revolutionary military, you were responsible for coming up with the list of all those under your command who would be eligible for the land grants. Mm -hmm. So Bushnell and uh, Murphy knew who was getting grants, knew how much they were getting, and uh, made a price. Looking at some of the grants, it's... That's insider trading. Oh, yeah. They had the inside information. The yeah. They could do it. And uh, looking at some of those early uh, deeds where they're buying the grant lands, uh, uh, Murphy was buying them for British pounds hmm. a lot of times. So he had uh, access to money of the defeated uh, uh, enemy, uh, but was still uh, use useful currency. Because yeah. you'll see it recited that for X number of British pounds, so-and-so uh, assigns his grant to uh, Murphy. Uh, and the mistake there was North Carolina appointed one man to oversee the entire system. It's a good thing it was an honest man, yeah. He, well, it turns out it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and he eventually uh, was discovered, and oh, that's a pretty story because the one who blew the whistle, remember that? It was Andrew Jackson, young congressman. When he got to Washington, he saw what was going on, and he alerted the uh, Tennessee governor at the time, John Sevier. Mm -hmm. And uh, North Carolina eventually prosecuted uh, the fellow who was the Secretary of State of North Carolina. And uh, his signature, you could get whatever you could convince him you were entitled to. Uh, and, That's a lot of power when you think about it. Oh, yeah. Well, we talk about the land scams in Florida when it was being first developed, but nothing compares to the scale of uh, the uh, scandal that emerged from the North Carolina land grants. Has there ever been a book written on that to, to follow it all the way from start to finish? Uh, in my book, there's an item on it, but of course I don't have the detail as to which properties were 
part of the scam and which properties were properly assigned. But I suspect that in uh, Rutherford County, there's a number that probably were uh, a part of the abuse of this authority that he had. There were a lot of mistakes made in this country, all the way from uh, east to west. But when you think about it, uh, it came out pretty good in the end, didn't it? I, I know there were a lot of people that were abused and were not held up to the higher standards that they should have been. But compared, but, but compared, compared to everything else, it's, it's unbelievable. Anywhere else, we've prospered because we do respect individual rights. Yeah. And uh, the definitions may change, but, uh, and I know you're wondering, how do you know it's a cave? Is there anything that makes a hole in the ground a cave? And in Tennessee, there's a rule. There is? Yeah, if there is 50 feet. Who determined that? The state legislature. Okay. <laughs> if you can go 50 feet into the hole unobstructed, it's a cave. Mm -hmm. If it's less than 50 feet, it's a rock shelter. I thought it was just going to be a hole. That seems sufficient to me. Yeah, yeah. Have you, ha, have you got anything uh, on on your uh, uh, large piece of property that uh, would be determined as a cave? There's a crack in the rock in front of the old barn on the back of the property that I can feel a little bit of air movement through. But it's only a couple of inches wide and about a foot long. And uh, The little princess wouldn't fit in there, would no, you? No, you'd have to go in there with the backhoe yeah. and do a little digging to see what's there, uh, but no. But I know that there's a underground stream beneath Cripple Creek, because uh, I think one of my kids observed many years ago, where do the fish go when the creek dries up? As it used to, not this year. By July and August, there was no flow in the part of Cripple Creek that goes through my property. But uh, as soon as the water comes back, you got fish in there. Uh, there is a water flow beneath the rocks that are the bed of the creek and uh, apparently the fish can get down in there and survive until the next. I, I've got a question and probably Mentorette could answer this one. Uh, at the old Caffey farm over there on Cripple Creek there, uh, there there was a kind of a little it would catch rain it, it was concrete and it was a place for the, you know the animals could go drink out of it uh, but there was no other entrance or exit there, in the, and, and it was probably about, uh, I'm going to say maybe four feet by eight feet. And I would go over there and look, and there would be fish in there. And I, I, there was no way nobody could ever answer the question, where do these fish come from? They were little minnows, baby fish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you've never heard of flying fish? Oh, they flew in there. Uh, all the way from where? Catalina Island. <laughs> I, I would look in there and I'd say, there has to be some scientific reason where maybe a bird had caught uh, uh, two or three and dropped them or whatever. But n nothing that you could put a finger on. You can't answer that question. Are you sure they were fish and not tadpoles? They were fish. They were fish. Yeah, I could tell the difference between yeah. a fish and a tadpole. Flying fish. Yeah, yeah. I'll stick with my answer. <laughs> Ask the real scientific person in the family if she can explain that. Uh, you probably, if you go on the Internet, you can find an answer. You got a picture of the, of the basin you talked about? Uh, of where, the, where they, they're swimming around? Yeah. No, no. In fact, I think it's still there, though. I'm pretty sure it's there. Um, that was one of the more interesting places that I've ever been was on the old Caffey place. It was, he had, it had more interest in little animals and everything else. That, um, the farms, well, probably all around the county, the old farms date way, way back. I mean, you know, these grants were made in the 1780s, 1790s. Mm -hmm. And, uh, most of the most of the grants eventually were worked. Yeah. So you take a area like Donald's Chapel. The history of Donald's Chapel goes back 
before Murfreesboro, uh, before the towns as we know them. Wasn't, wasn't, didn't a king own that property at one time? And didn't he have his castle back there on the back piece of property? I don't know that story. Oh, come on. I do know that there was a British lord who mm -hmm. thought he owned all of Tennessee. And he funded one of the early, uh, the long rifle hunters, long hunters. He funded one of the early long hunter expeditions to explore his holdings. Of course, the British lost the Revolutionary War, so uh, that didn't work out. But uh, it was assigned to one of the British lords at one time. Didn't he own the fox camp in Eagleville at one time? The fox. I, I, yeah, yeah. Don't you remember when they used to have people come over from England and ride oh, after right, the foxes? Right. Yeah. Fox hunting, yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure that was a derivative. Uh, there was also a fox camp on the Manchester Highway down towards the Big Spring big springs which didn't have that type of reputation i've got a message up here on my screen that says we're tired of you so won't you just say we're through <laughs> who sent that in i uh, probably brian i guess i don't know all right so we're through we're through see all right guys Monday. we'll see you in the morning from Sylvan Park Restaurant on Northwest Broad Street, it's The Truman Show on News Radio WGNS, FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and streaming online at WGNSradio.com.